This morning, if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. This is, uh, we are, we'll be um, looking at the last part of this chapter, and then we'll be taking a break for the holiday season, returning to John chapter 11 in January. And so this morning, we look at John's words to us, beginning our reading in verse 22, continuing through verse 42. Hear the word of God. John 10, 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there, the word of our God. So approach our God in prayer that he might speak to us clearly. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have recorded for us, the spirit that inspired it, and the spirit that continues to speak. May you apply this to our lives, opening our eyes that we may believe, enabling us to see not only you, but ourselves to show our need, but that ultimately through Jesus, that you enable us to see by faith, that we would recognize your love and what you are like, and recognize by faith in him who we are in our security. Speak to us now during this time by your word and spirit, that you may shape us in our hearts, in our minds, and therefore our lives. 
We pray all of this in Christ, the Word incarnated. Amen. In the early days of television, one of the more popular shows was a game show called To Tell the Truth. And in this game show, you would have four celebrity panelists that were presented with three contestants, each claiming to be a particular person, one particular person, three people making that claim. The host of the show would declare in advance that one of these people had a particular job or has experience, had a particular experience, and it was the panelist's job to guess which one of them is the person who had had the experience or who has that job. The panelists were given an opportunity to ask questions of the contestants. The two of the contestants were allowed to lie through their teeth, and yet the one who was the genuine article was required to tell the truth at all times. After the questioning period, the panelists would be asked uh, to vote and see if they could guess which one was the genuine article. And then after the votes had been cast, the host of the show would then say, will the real whatever, whoever, please stand up. If they fooled them, they won money. If the, contestant, if the panel got it right, then some charity would benefit and receive a gift because of the show. Now what we have in our passage here this morning is somewhat like that. See, John is telling us that it was the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is better known to most of us as, as Hanukkah. And so we know from that that it's probably been about two months between John 10.21 and John 10.22, at least two months from the previous festival uh, that, um, that the context that uh, we've been looking at uh, in, until Hanukkah comes. And we're told that Jesus was taking a stroll in the temple area when suddenly he was surrounded by a group of inquisitors, people who were hungry to see God at work in their broken world and in their broken lives, people who had been longing for quite some time for God to fulfill his promise and send the Messiah who would deliver his people yet again from their bondage they were thinking of the oppression to the Roman government. God, as we see over and over again, was thinking their oppression and in bondage to their own sin. Nevertheless, they were hungry to, to see that uh, Messiah that was promised to come into fruition. And not only were they anxious about seeing the promise of God, they were curious about this Jesus who had been in their midst and wanted to know without any doubt who he was, what was his identity, at least as he claimed to be. And so we see that they approach him, and the image that we're told is they encircled him. They, they circled around him. They gathered around him, this, this mob, and with an intensity, essentially said, look, quit being so vague. If you are the promised Christ, tell us. In other words, if you are the real one, well, the real Messiah, please stand up. They were tired of the false messiahs that had come, people claiming and then proving to be failures. Others who were not claiming to be Messiah and yet who had done powerful and tremendous things and whom they wished had been the Messiah and yet 
who proved in time not to be the Messiah. They desperately wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, and yet they had great reservations if he affirmed uh, their question. Jesus gives them an, ins- an interesting response. He says, I've already told you many times. And if my words are not sufficient for you, if you're one of those people that actions speak louder than words, I've been doing miracles, I've been doing works from the Father that all testify to my identity as being the one who has been promised to you. And then he moves on. He does challenge them as to why they are not able to comprehend. They don't see because they don't believe. They must believe in order to see. But for those who see, we see picking up in verse 28, he makes these incredible promises. We'll pick pick up in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, which itself is a tremendous promise. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now you would imagine, after such not only an affirmation, but such glorious promises as being given eternal life and the security of belonging to God the Father, that the people would respond with celebration. You would think somebody would say, you know, pull out the champagne bottles, pop the corks, let's, I mean, let's have a party, because these are tremendous things. The very things that they were longing for, to be seeing God in their midst and to be reconciled and to have fellowship with God and to have God's protective hand upon their lives, not only to protect but to to guide them. All of this is what Jesus is saying is true for everyone who believes in him. And yet, how do they respond? In verse 31, we are stunned if we would be looking at this with eyes that are new, things that we, as if we'd never seen it before. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So Jesus is making these glorious promises to them, and they are murderously angry and hostile and threatening violence. And not just threatening, but in, intending to do bodily harm and, and to and to kill him. And it begs the question, why such hostility? I mean, even if they didn't believe him, what is warranting his death? And worse yet, what if they still had suspicions that what he claimed were true? Why would they respond so angrily? And I suspect, and I think that it's borne out in the interaction here, it's because they recognize the implications that go along with the claims that Jesus is making about himself. That he's not only the one who is promised, but therefore he has authority to direct life, to call good good and evil evil. And that because he had authority and he had shown that he had his own agenda, 
he was not going to be subject to the whims of the people as if he is somebody who needs to be elected and making campaign promises. So we see in a sense that they are disappointed because he is not what they were expecting and wanting. And if his claims are true, then they have to adjust to frustrated hopes, which makes many of us angry when we desperately hope for something and we see that that's not the way things are going to work out. We get some hint of that by the descriptive things that John puts in the beginning of this text. They are helpful for us to set the scene, but there is also significance to them as well that John tells us that this is taking place during Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the celebration of the Jewish people that they would gather together to celebrate the restoration and the rededication of the temple that took place in 164 B.C. A few years prior to that, the Greeks who were dominating the world had taken over the temple. They had moved the Jewish people out. They had taken over the temple. And one of their leaders, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, went in with clear intent to just desecrate the whole place. And so in the temple of the Jews to the living and true God, he built an altar to the Greek uh, Greek mythological god of Zeus. And then upon that that, uh, altar that was built, that itself was a desecration, he brought in a pig, which was not to be anywhere found in a Jewish culture, and he sacrificed the pig, which was declared ritually unclean, sacrificed that in the temple. The temple remained occupied and off-limits to the Jewish people, even as it had been corrupted for a few years. But in 167 B.C., in a moment known as the Maccabean Rebellion, a group of brothers, the Maccabee, uh, Maccabeus brothers raided, reclaimed the temple, and after taking possession of it, they rededicated it through purification and offering it back as of opening it back up for worship of the living and true God. And so from that point forward, the Jewish people would celebrate Hanukkah for God's provision to them of restoring the temple, their center of worship. Many people look to Judas Maccabeus as being the Messiah, although I don't believe he made that claim himself. But he was everything everybody wanted in a Messiah because he had overthrown the government that was oppressing them. He had restored to them their religion and their worship practices. He was a political leader who happened to be a faithful believer. And that is exactly what they were looking for That is what they wanted. And yet Jesus now claiming to be this Messiah had shown no indication of overthrowing the government. But rather he had the audacity of personally challenging the hearts of the very people that he was sent to. And bringing transformation, not through political and military means, but through transformation of the heart and then sending that message of the gospel to shape a people throughout the world. They may not have minded the 
spiritual aspect of Jesus's ministry, but they wanted politics because politics reigned supreme then, even as many of us are prone to believe now. But God's plan was far more radical than simply to establish a political entity. They were disappointed also and probably frustrated because not only did Jesus not meet their expectations, but he had the audacity to challenge them and, their, and, their, and was unimpressed by their moral superiority. They were living their lives and Jesus came and says, look, you've, you say this, but this is what God says. And constantly is challenging the moral standards of these people who consider themselves to be, well, better than everybody else. And even when they didn't measure up to their own standard, they always had this fallback is, well, at least I'm not like fill in the blank. So I may not be perfect, but I'm better than you. So, uh, and, and they lived with this, this mindset. And Jesus not only failed to affirm them in their greatness, he pulled the rug out from underneath them. They didn't have any standing. And most of us get quite angry when people don't recognize our inherent greatness. And if the claims that Jesus was making are true, then he also was claiming that he had the authority to dictate life and how people ought to live. And he did dare to tell them how they were to live. And so they were incredibly angry. But even with all of these things and, and this whole dynamic, one of the things that we need to see from this scene, and it's repeated all throughout scripture, is this is the essence of Christianity is not found primarily in the behavior or the rules. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ himself. See, he was continually challenging the people to repent even of their good deeds and believe not just that God was good, but believe in him, in his person, that he was sent by the Father to them, that in him everything they had hoped for would be found and would be fulfilled. The essence of Christianity is found in the person of Jesus Christ, not merely in his teachings, which themselves are God-given. But if Jesus had come as primarily a teacher and that the essence of Christianity was simply by getting our lives in line with the series of teachings, it would not have likely have raised this kind of an intense reaction. People would have taken his teachings and adopted the stuff they liked, and they would have ignored the stuff that they, they didn't like. And so they may have had varying levels of appreciation or uh, lack of appreciation for Jesus, but anger to the point of driving somebody to murder really doesn't arise. You just fire your life coach. You don't kill him. But all through the scripture, but quite clearly here, Jesus is declaring that he did not come to be the life coach. He came to be our king. And so he responds to their anger at his answer to their question. And he makes clear his identity even as they asked that he would do. And the first thing that we see here is that he came to be the king. We see that based on their own question. If we go back and we see what it was that they asked, they said, if you are the Christ, tell us clearly. 
So we examine their question and we, we see what Jesus was claiming to be. So many of us think of Jesus Christ as being the name of God who came in the flesh. And Jesus is his name, but we tend to think of Jesus being his first name, Christ being his last name. But Christ is not his last name, Christ is his title. We see that evidence by the fact that they said are, that you are, if you are the Christ, that's, that's an indication of the title. The Greek word there is Christos. The Hebrew word that corresponds with that, Hamashiach, which means Messiah, Christ, Messiah. They, they both mean the same thing, and they both mean king, God's promised king. And so they themselves were wanting to know whether Jesus is the king, and he said, I've already told you, and not only have I told you, but I have demonstrated this to you through my works, that I am the king that God promised in Psalm 2. When the nations were conspiring against God, and God just looked at them and started laughing at them, and Actually, we're told he was mocking the nations that thought highly of themselves. And then he firmly reminds them, I've already established my king in Zion, my holy hill. That king is Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be the king that the prophets had foretold that would come and to lead his people into time and to everlasting life and overflowing happiness and joy. Jesus is the king, as Tolkien had said, would come and make all sad things become untrue. Jesus is identifying himself through his affirmation here of being the Christ, saying, I am. But then that itself may not be the basis for their anger, even if it is the basis of their discomfort. Because Jesus claims not only to be the king that God had promised, the Messiah that they were hoping for. Jesus claimed to be God. Because as he finishes this discourse of the promises that belong to those who are part of his flock, those who believe in him, those whom he knows, he finishes it up in, here in verse 30 by saying, I and the Father are one. And this is an absolutely incredible claim that Jesus is saying that he who is there in the flesh is God. That if, as, he, as we're told elsewhere, if you have seen me, you have seen God the Father. They are one. Now, some might suggest or wonder, could Jesus have been speaking metaphorically here? You know, that they're one in purpose, that they are unified in that, like any good team would be. That they would be one in purpose, working together, and they are all one. That unity is the essence of any championship team. We assume it would also be the reality of any good orchestra, that those who are many would come together and they would play their parts having one purpose. Or even a couple who is said to be of one mind, which is strength. We, we understand that the unity and the partnership that's involved in that. And while it's a reasonable question to wonder if maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said, I and the Father are one, that he was being metaphorical here. I think we see quite clearly that that's not what Jesus meant because we see quite clearly that that's not what the Jewish people around him heard him saying. They believed he was saying he was God. We see that by the evidence. When they picked up the stones, Jesus challenges them. He's challenging them in their own hearts as well. 
And he's saying, look, I've done a number of tremendous things, a number of things that the Father has called me to do, many, many miracles. So which of these miracles that God sent me to do are you going to stone me for? They respond as we see in verse 33. It's not for good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a mere man, are claiming to be God. Now, think about that for a moment. If Jesus was not making the claim to be God, don't you think this would have been a good time for him to bring clarity to the situation when somebody's got a rock and they're getting ready to kill you? If it was me, I think I would be saying, no, 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 you got me all wrong. And look, I'm very well aware of what it is like to say something that turns out to be very stupid, no matter how profound I thought it was in the first place. And then needing to go explain myself after the fact and saying, no, no, what I meant to say and what I left out and all, this, all those other things. This was clear cut. If Jesus was not claiming to be God, this is the opportunity for him to say, no, 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 you misunderstand. I'm sent from God. I'm going to do God's works. I'm going to do good things. But there is only one God. Jesus affirms that there's only one God. And he says, I'm him. Never let anybody tell you that Jesus doesn't claim to be God. It makes no sense. It is contrary to all of the teaching that we've seen up to this point and here. The clear, subtle affirmation and the lack of correction when it would have been warranted and even necessary. Because if Jesus wasn't God and was claiming to be and not clearing this up, then he deserved to be stoned in according to the laws of the day. He would be a blasphemer. And this is a very important thing for every one of us to consider, but because it roots us in the foundation of what it means to belong to God, to be his people, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is to believe in Jesus, who is not only the king who has the authority to direct us and to teach us, but he himself is God who has come into this world to claim a people for himself. And some of us who are here, many of you I, I know, and, and it's exciting to see the, the number of people that are, are seekers that have been coming to the church in these recent weeks. People who are exploring Christianity, or people who are relatively new to the faith. And you particularly, I want to challenge to think about this claim, this audacious claim that Jesus Christ is making. Because in this is the heart of what it means to be a Christian, the heart of Christianity. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, or do you not believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And every one of us falls into one of two categories. We either believe or we don't believe. Ultimately, that's the decision. We have to take him with his word, or we have to assume that he's a fraud. For those of you who are processing that still, I would just challenge you with this challenge that C.S. Lewis so wonderfully offered. And he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. What they say is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any of this patronizing nonsense about being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Lewis, in this, is challenging the essence of Christianity and saying, as you explore Jesus, and you now hear what he is claiming to be about himself, do you believe he is God, or do you not believe that he's God? He is either God, or he's not, but he is not good if he is not God. But it's not only those who are seeking that need to be rooted in that reality or that claim, but those who have been in the faith for a long time and have committed yourselves to it. And some of you who are here could probably have finished that whole C.S. Lewis quote soon after I gave you the first three words without any prompting and help because it, it's a very common quote in evangelical circles. And yet we are in no less need of constantly being reminded and being awed all over again at the reality of Jesus, King, God in the flesh, because every blessing, every promise is rooted in him either being who he says he is or our rejecting him and continuing to look for another. And Jesus puts contingency here on the promises that he makes on believing. And he reaffirms that. And he challenges the hearers as he's challenging us. If you don't believe the words, then believe the works. And he says, but if you don't believe that these are from God, then don't believe in him. He's making everything about him. But we do see he makes promises. I want to draw your attention back to verse 28 as we see the promise that he makes. For those who believe in Christ, he says this, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. These are absolutely incredible, incredible promises. First, he makes the promise that he gives eternal life. It, he gives it. It's not earned. It can be found nowhere else. It's his as God to give or to not give. And he says he gives eternal life to those who belong to him by believing that he is who he says he is. 1 Corinthians 15, we are told this, that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. In other words, in God's redemptive plan, everything else may get fixed, but death is the last one to go. And we see through the scriptures and even in our own understanding that death is not only our final enemy, it's also our fiercest enemy. In Proverbs 30, we are told that there are three things that are never satisfied. And then in that list of three, the first thing that's listed is death or the grave. 
death never takes a break. Death never takes a holiday. Death never says, look, I'm full up. I'm not going to take anybody today. Death is insatiable and incessant. And yet we are told that Jesus Christ came to this earth in order to defeat that enemy. And we see later in 1 Corinthians 15, the very victory cry that the prophets had declared through the Psalms that was embraced by the Apostle Paul when he says that all of us should claim this, death was swallowed up in victory, which is Jesus' victory on the cross. And then mocking death, oh death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? The only one that's able to mock the final enemy is the one who has power and authority and who has defeated that enemy. And that is the king who was established on Zion, the promised Messiah, who would come and give his life for us. And Jesus says, for those who believe, I give them eternal life, doubles down on it, they will never perish. And that itself is incredible, but what if somehow we could lose that? You know, it's good that we have it, but you know, we can lose it. I, I can lose pretty much anything. I can't tell you how many times I found my keys in my pocket after an hour of looking for them. So, um, and this is a great fear for a lot of people. This promise seems too good to be true. And then we, we mess everything up. What, what if we mess that up? Or what if circumstances change? Jesus makes the incredible claim that no one can take them out of my hands. And then he follows that up, and he says, and my father who is greater than everything, no one can take them out of his hands. And so in one sense, he's giving us this mental image that we have two sets of hands, both gods, holding on to us. To lose it, we would have to say, then who is stronger than God? Who has the authority to take things from God? Who has the ability to take things from God? And the answer is no one. God has all power, all authority to do as he pleases, and he's promising to those who believe, nobody can take you from him. This is a difficult thing for us to swallow because we recognize that in this life, almost anything can be lost or stolen, no matter how great the security is. You may be familiar with what is known as the heist of the century. February 2003, the Antwerp World Diamond Center was robbed. And the amount of jewels that were available to be taken by the thieves was so great that the thieves could not haul all of it away. Police are still astounded that this could take place. What they do know is that a man named Leonardo Nota Bartolo, who was a career jewel thief, had rented space in the same building where the Diamond Center was. He had rented that space three years before the caper was pulled off. He posed as an Italian diamond merchant, and he would take meetings, and he would make small deals in order to gain credibility, and nobody ever suspected a thing. But when it came time to move, uh, the thieves all, so... Um, Nato Bartolo and his, um, his accomplices had been working on a plan. They inserted tapes into the security cameras to cover their movements. And then they made their way to the vault. But the vault itself 
had 10 layers of security, including these things. Infrared heat detection system, Doppler radar, which I assumed was for the weather, but maybe that was part of it. <laughs> a magnetic field, a seismic center, and a lock with more than 100 million possible combinations. These were among the 10 layers of security. And police still can't figure out how they did it. They even have the mastermind. They haven't found the jewels, and they can't figure it out how it was done. The point being is a contrast here, is that almost anything in this life can be stolen or lost, no matter how great the security measures are. So it's reasonable that we would fear that what is given to us as a gift can be taken from us. The promise of Jesus Christ is for those who believe in him. No one, in no way, can take you away from him. You are secure by God himself. I pray that we would be a people who not only know that, but that we would live in light of that. Because in that security, we find freedom. And the security that holds us is his love. And his love and the extent of it was demonstrated in the person of Christ, particularly the fact that he gave himself for us while we were his enemies. And as Paul contemplates that and challenges us to think, and how much more now that we are his children.